This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This is a great segment. Ten things to know about personal bankruptcy. And it's really like ten facts about personal bankruptcy that you might not have known. It's one of those crazy, scary words uh, that you think it's one thing, but actually it's a whole bunch of other things. And it's and it's different in British Columbia than it would be in Alberta, right, Blair? Like it, it, are, we have different rules. Each province has different rules. Yeah, that that's right, Elaine. So the legislation is federal, but it interacts with a bunch of provincial regulations. So, for example, uh, in the province of BC, if you've got a home and there's some equity, you've got a certain amount that's exempt if you file for bankruptcy. Uh, if you're in Alberta, it's a different amount that's exempt. So from province to province, it can be a little bit different. Uh, but the overall proceeding itself, it's generally a federal rule. But again, it can be quite different on where you file. And if it's something that you think, oh, I'm in this alone, nobody else, nobody knows anything about this, they won't be able to understand my situation, um, we know, just because I've been hanging out with you for a while, Blair, how common it is for people to get professional debt help from a licensed insolvency trustee. You would be amazed, Elaine, at uh, the people that come through our door. It's literally all walks of life. Um, I've had people I've assisted with bankruptcies that went, have went on to be federal members of parliament uh, who run successful medical and legal practices, uh, all the way to folks who are in their 70s or 80s and, you know, just carry debt into retirement. And now it's just, you know, stressing them out to no end. So um, you're definitely not alone if you're facing financial challenges. Um, in Canada, the rate of bankruptcies is about 4.6 out of every 1,000 Canadians. So on a, on a yearly basis, it's about half of a percent of us um, end up seeing a trustee for a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. And what that means is in 2019, which is the most recent stats, it was over 140,000 individuals filed either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. And in the province of BC, it was around 1,000 people a month uh, were visiting a trustee to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So odds are someone in your life has had to restructure their debts. You may not know about it because bankruptcy is generally a very private process and you're only notified if you're one of the people who's not getting paid. It doesn't go in the newspaper, but it's definitely something that more and more Canadians are taking advantage of to restructure themselves. Now, do I already know the answer to this question? 2020, that that data, those numbers aren't in yet for you. Um, Is it considerably more? Is it hugely more? Or, you know, where, where did 2020 sit with these kinds of numbers? Well, and that was what was fascinating because... January and February of 2020 were crazily busy. They were the busiest months we had ever seen. And, you know, the market itself seemed to be going up about 15% year over year, which is quite large. So we thought, okay, a lot of this debt that's out there is it's starting to reckon. Um, and then the pandemic hit and insolvency filings, obviously it was no longer a top priority to file a bankruptcy or a proposal if we're all in lockdown and, you know, just trying to survive for periods of time. And then the government stepped in with some great programs like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and creditors came forward with payroll deferrals. So bankruptcy actually went to a 20-year low uh, during much of 2020, but it started to recover very recently. The numbers are definitely starting to come back because government supports are becoming less and less, and creditors are starting to collect again and take people to court. 
and people are are sort of doing what they used to do or start caring about things that they used to do, I bet, hey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's coming back to normalcy, so to speak. Okay, so we're thinking lots of people in the province chose to reach out for help, and obviously we saw those. you saw those numbers in 2019, looking at consumer proposals and bankruptcy, but it's still a bit of a road for folks to arrive at the right professional, like a licensed insolvency trustee, and the processes aren't very well understood, and that's what this segment's all about. So can we talk about some key facts about bankruptcy and, and you know who's eligible and, and what that might look like for someone? Yeah, so I think we've got 10 here, 10 things to know. So let's see if we can get through all 10 in today's segment, and some of them might be a little bit quicker or slower than others. Uh, The first one is the creditor permission is not needed. So sometimes that's the first thing I say to individuals when they start to talk about bankruptcy is this is your decision. You don't need to get permission from anybody. You can't be denied this remedy. No one's going to show up and say, no, I don't want this person to go bankrupt. I want to be paid. Their, Their views just don't matter. So bankruptcy is your right as an individual in Canada if you owe more than $1,000. And usually people owe a lot more than that before they file. But if you owe more than $1,000 and can't pay it as it becomes due, you have the right to get relief by filing a bankruptcy. No permission is needed. Okay. What about what's uh, what's the next one that you sort of see a lot of? Well, so the second one is people have a misconception that, you know, filing bankruptcy is very difficult. They've got to source out a lawyer. They've got to pay the lawyer a bunch of money as a retainer. They've got to do some court applications. And the reality of this is that in Canada, only a licensed insolvency trustee can help you file a bankruptcy. So we used to be called a trustee in bankruptcy, which is very descriptive of what we do. But they broadened that title to be, you know, it's all about insolvency proposals and bankruptcies. But the first step is to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee uh, every trustee will meet with you at no charge, no obligation to explain the law to you, to help you fill out the forms that you would need to fill out. And then the trustee will execute those forms with you and then file it with the government to start a bankruptcy proceeding. So you don't need a lawyer. You don't need to apply to court. You don't need a bunch of money up front to access a bankruptcy. You just need to meet with a trustee. Okay, before we continue on, I just want to throw this in here too that that it's so easy to do if you're all if this is already speaking to you loudly that you need to take some action. Give Sands and Associates that call. It's a 1-800 number 661-3030. 1-800-661-3030 or go to the website sands-trustee.com. Now, you already mentioned that $1,000 minimum debt. And is that just in British Columbia or is that something that's a national number? Yeah, that's a federal um number right in the law. And again, the bankruptcy uh, law was written back in the 1930s, the Great Depression, when $1,000 was probably equivalent to, you know, fifteen dollars to $20,000. It was a very extreme amount to owe. Um, you know, as of now, I don't have many people to file for less than, you know, $10,000 of debt. But sometimes people at $5,000, if their income is very minimal and the stress is just overwhelming, then people can file a bankruptcy for small amounts of debt. The legal minimum is 1000 Practically, it's closer to five is usually the smaller bankruptcies that we see. Um, but it could be any amount of debt as long as it exceeds $1,000. I think this is an important aspect, too, of bankruptcy, is that um, getting a hold of you and and putting Sands & Associates into action, it stops the creditor contacting the person. That's right. So when you file for bankruptcy, it's so important people realize you will get relief. So just by law, the day you sign the bankruptcy documents, uh, you no longer have to deal with your creditors at all. The trustee steps in the middle, basically like a referee, and explains to you to successfully complete the bankruptcy, here's the things that you have to do, and explains to the creditors that now that the trustee is appointed, there's what's called a stay of proceedings, which means they can't take any other actions, they can't call you. 
um, send you emails, demand payments, start any court proceedings. So you stop having to deal with your creditors. You just deal with the trustee after you sign a bankruptcy document. And this covers all types of debt. Am I, am I right about that? Well, virtually all type is what I would say. So any type of debt that you think should be restructured um, generally can be restructured in a consumer proposal or in a personal bankruptcy, which we're talking about today. Now, the only ones that can't be restructured are if, you know, a court has awarded um, a fine against you. You can't go to court. You can't file a bankruptcy to get out of your court-imposed fines. Um, Things like alimony or child support, you can't file a bankruptcy to get out of those obligations. But I meet very few people that would want to get out of those obligations, usually it's the case if we can restructure uh, all of the other debts that are holding the person back, they're then in that much better stead, better uh, position to be able to pay the child support and pay the alimony on an ongoing basis. But other than that, you know, general business and consumer debts, credit cards, lines of credit, overdrafts, payday loans, uh, debts for a business that you've guaranteed, even personal debts, tax debts, student loans. It's just a long, long list. It's a, it's a shorter list to say what can't be included, which again, is just your support and maintenance obligations and anything imposed by the court. Now, the other big fear part of a bankruptcy is your assets. Um, what do you get to keep? Well, for most people in the province of BC, they keep all of their assets when they go through a bankruptcy. And that surprised me when I started to study to become a trustee. Because I thought, well, by definition, don't you lose everything if you're bankrupt? And, well, you know, yeah, if you've got, you know, the jet ski or the boat or the, the, you know, recreational toys, you might have to surrender certain items. But for the vast majority of people, there are provincial exemptions that actually step in to say, you know, it would not be right or just to take every asset away from somebody when they're seeking help for their debts. So in the province of BC, people keep their household furniture, they keep a vehicle. They can keep home equity up to a certain amount. Uh, they can keep their RRSPs up to an unlimited value, um, their clothing, their work tools, and even certain life insurance policies if the beneficiary is in their family, you know, parent, grandparent, or spouse. Um, all of those things can be kept as someone goes through a bankruptcy. So before someone starts to sell off all of their assets to pay their debt, they need to get some advice on what, what really would be at risk. What kind of time is involved in a bankruptcy these days? A lot less than you think. And this is seven. I think we're going to be good to get through 10. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. For the the vast majority of people, bankruptcy is over in as little as nine months. So for someone who's never been bankrupt before and is considered a low-income individual, which is less than about $2,400 for a single person, they're in bankruptcy for nine months, regardless of the amount of debt, and they're discharged after that period. If you're not low-income, the bankruptcy runs a year longer, so it's 21 months. It's nowhere near the six or seven years most people have heard. I know a lot of people are always worried about credit history and the impact that something like this could have on it. That's right. So that's kind of the, you know, the downside that a lot of people focus on when you file a bankruptcy is your credit score essentially gets reset to zero. I encourage people to just assume you're going to start to rebuild from a zero base, but it's not permanent. It's not forever. And oftentimes people can rebuild their credit far quicker than if they had just hunkered down and tried to pay off all their debt for the next 15 or 20 years. So people typically can recover from a bankruptcy in as little as two to three years after it's finished. And it's noted on their credit report for six years after it's finished, but people can get a more within two to three years of a bankruptcy if they've done the right steps to rebuild, have a good income, and have been able to save some money. The other cool thing about it, or not cool thing, I shouldn't, that's not the best word, but not everybody needs to know what, what's going on for you as a result. It's a pretty quiet process. 
And that's true as well. So again, the, the typical assumption is bankruptcy is a public record. Haven't you seen those notices in the newspaper? It's like, well, if every bankruptcy was in the newspaper, there would be no room for anything else. Um, so it is the case. Bankruptcy is generally very private. It's less than 1% of cases. There has to be any public notification at all. The vast majority of cases, it's just notifying the creditors, the people they owe money to. Uh, and then the trustee obviously is aware, but that's where it ends. So that's why if someone in your life has probably done this. You had no idea because you weren't required to be involved. And there's still a stigma around owing money. So people generally are pretty private about these things. And talking about money, what's the cost to the person to go into bankruptcy these days? Yeah, it's generally a lot less than what they're paying on their debt. So for someone that's low income in that nine month scenario we talked about, they pay $200 a month for nine months for a total of $1,800. That's all that they pay. There's nothing they pay extra for taxes being done or for counseling. Um, and that's basically it. And that can discharge any amount of debt. Get you a fresh start. It's $200 a month for nine months. If your income is higher, then it's calculated based on your income. But it's generally a whole lot better than what you were doing to pay off your debts. So, and, and if you want to learn more about bankruptcy, debt consolidation, really anything to do with this, with this topic, booking an appointment with somebody at Sands and Associates is just probably the best first step you can take. It's confidential. It's a debt consultation with people who are super knowledgeable. You give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So this segment's about debt solutions for business owners. Um, and I, w when I was preparing for this segment, Blair, reading through all the things to pay attention to, boy, oh boy, you really have to know what you're doing to be in business these days and just managing the regular stuff, let alone uh, getting yourself into a situation where there's a lot of debt involved and now you've got to take some action. Um, so before I go to you, I just want to say that this segment's about the common mistakes, and there's plenty of them, to avoid in dealing with business debt and where to get help in managing that debt. So, yeah, you, you, yeah, oh, cute. I was just Go ahead. Say, Elaine, you, you, yeah. yeah, you really said, said it right. When it's so complicated to be self-employed, you know, there's no crash course that you have to take to become self-employed in Canada. There's nobody that sits you down and says, you know, here's the lay of the land. Here's where people get in trouble. Uh, my wife, one of her friends, was studying to become a realtor, and I looked at the textbook. It was about 700 pages long. There was not one page in there about make sure you pay your GST, make sure you pay your income mm. tax, your installments. And every realtor that I see, that's their issue, um, is that they were really good at the front end of the job of the selling but the administration side of it and with cra you know they they're nice people but they have requirements so um you know it really can be a case where people can be really good at their day job but it's not knowing all the requirements the intricacies of how things can work with business and with debt um, that can really trip people up and get them into trouble that's really interesting. Yeah, because it is complicated. I mean, just looking at being a realtor, uh, you know, the payoff is enormous, especially in the market that they may be in, mm -hmm. if it's the lower mainland or anywhere in British Columbia, at least the southern half of the province. Um, so can we talk about sort of the basics uh, when it comes to business debts? What are the things yeah. that we should know? Yeah, exactly. So let's start, you know, really at, at kind of nuts and bolts. The first thing when a business owner comes in and sits down with me is I'm trying to understand what's the structure of the business and where does the debt liability truly lie? And that can be different depending on how the business is set up. So in in Canada, there's three types 
of small business structures, the three very common types of small business structures, and they each have advantages and disadvantages depending on the owner's goals and objectives. And typically when you're setting up a business, this is the time to really invest, get your team, you know, figure out the accountant and the lawyer that's going to give you some good advice from the start, um, rather than just, you know, picking something and going with it and, and like learning a, a little bit later that you've set up your business in the wrong manner. So the three ways to set up a business, first off is a sole proprietorship. And this is definitely the most common way to go. And it's the simplest way. Uh, and what that means is essentially you, the owner uh, and the business are the same entity. There's no legal separation. The assets and debts of your business are also your personal assets and your debts. So, you know, a simple person operating, say a fruit stand on the side of the highway, they're typically set up as a sole proprietorship. It's very simple. Um, you can have bigger, larger, complex businesses as a sole proprietorship, but it's definitely the simple way that most people default into first off. Uh, a less common structure is a partnership, and that's where two or more people are combining resources in a business. They might establish some formal terms and become a partnership, which is not too difficult to get that underway, you know, sign a partnership agreement. But what's really important to know, and a lot of people don't realize this when they go into a partnership, is that each partner is personally responsible for the debts of the business, and they share in the liabilities of the actions of the other partners. So if you're in a partnership with somebody and suddenly they incur a whole lot of debt uh, into the business and they can't pay because you are a partner and because this happened as part of the partnership, you can find yourself liable to the extent of all of your assets to more than what you ever wanted to invest into the partnership. So most of the time, people that are, are in partnerships, you know, they're very sophisticated. They know what they're doing. They've gotten good advice. Um, folks that I see that have went into it without that, um, sometimes they have had some bad outcomes by not understanding, you know, the shared liability. But a partnership, definitely less common than a sole proprietorship. Uh, probably the, the one that's uh, most common, more so than a partnership, but less than a sole proprietorship, is an incorporated business. And this is what a lot of people think of when they say, I'm going to start my own business, is, you know, they decide it's going to be, pick a name of a company, XYZ Incorporated or XYZ Limited. And what that means is that it's a separate legal entity from the owner. It takes a little bit more time to establish, and it's a bit more costly than setting up your other structures like a proprietorship or a partnership partnership, but theoretically, this separation of being a separate legal person, that can reduce or eliminate some of the liabilities that you might have incurred um, as a sole proprietorship or a partnership. We're going to go through those in a little bit more detail during the segment here. When I first looked at uh, joining up with somebody to do a, a, a business together, I, it was always about, well, setting up something that's going to shield us from liability mm -hmm. or one of us or both of us. And um, it's kind of interesting as we start in this next part of it is that there really isn't anything that shields you from complete personal liability or, or am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And that's a key misconception that people have. They think, you know, I've set up an incorporated business. That incorporated business is a separate legal entity to myself. Therefore, if that business gets into trouble, I'm going to be scot-free as the owner. There's nothing I need to worry about. And that's just not correct. There's a bunch of things that can happen. And that's what we're going to outline a little bit. But that idea of misunderstanding your personal liability, um, that can be a huge factor that, you know, can really surprise people, both positively and negatively. Sometimes they find they don't owe things they thought they did. But more often, people think that they were shielded, and it turns out they actually did have some personal liability. So a few of the areas where this can start to arise um, is in collecting and remitting GST. 
So if a business earns more than $30,000 of revenue in a year, uh, the person or the corporation or the partnership needs to register with CRA and obtain a GST number to file those returns and to make the remittances. There's only a few areas where that doesn't arise, so some, a few uh, distinct occupations. But for the most part, if you're over 30000 you need to be collecting GST. And if you've got an incorporated business, if that business owes GST, you as the director of that business owe GST. So it's not the case that stops at the business's door. And obviously with a partnership or a proprietorship, you owe that GST directly because the business isn't separate. But that's one that we see a lot is unremitted GST. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and I just want to throw in at this point too, uh, Blair, so if there's someone who's listening to this segment and goes, oh boy, I was thinking about doing this or I've already done it and now I'm in trouble and there's debts and, and I don't know what to do. If you've heard enough already and you know that you need to talk to somebody, I, I can't encourage you enough to give Sands and Associates a call at 1-800-661-3030. So, Blair, going back to the segment, what are some of the areas of personal liability? I guess they'd be almost like crossovers that you see uh, when you're talking to somebody who's owning a business. Mm-hmm. So definitely GST, that, that's a big warning sign. So as, as you mentioned, Elaine, if someone's listening and their business owes GST, it's definitely worth getting some advice and understanding, you know, this is personal debt and what can you do about it. Another big category is payroll source deductions. So if you have employees, if you pay salaries, wages, or even if you give a taxable benefit to an employee, you must take source deductions from that amount, which you then need to report and remit to CRA. And what I mean by source deductions are CPP contributions, um, EI premium and federal and provincial income tax. So anyone that's working as an employee, when you look at your pay stub, you've got your gross amount, and then you've got all these nice deductions that come off, and then you get to your net. Um, your employer is responsible for making those deductions. And if the employer doesn't make those deductions, it's a personal liability to them, regardless of whether it's a corporation, a proprietorship, or a partnership. So alongside GST, payroll deductions are one of those debts. It's kind of the worst of the worst you can owe as a business, because the way CRA looks at it is both with GST and with source deductions, CRA says, well, this was never your money, business owner. This was money you were paying to your employee and had to hold back for the government, or it was money you collected from your clients to, to pay the GST. So the government usually doesn't have a whole lot of patience. If you if you put up a significant source deduction or GST debt, they might act very quickly against you, start to seize some assets, or take some very aggressive collection action. So uh, definitely, if you have those debts, it's worth reaching out for help. Yeah, absolutely. From personal experience, uh, many, many, many years ago, a company thought that they didn't have to be responsible and put the onus on the employees. And boy, were they wrong. And it really hit some employees hard because, of course, then they had to uh, cough up their share as well. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not a good situation. What are some of the common mistakes that people should avoid when it comes to their business debts? Are there some common things that we can do or that somebody can do? Well, there's a bunch of things that you should try to avoid. And so kind of the inverse is what you should do. So the thing to avoid is avoid procrastinating, you know, thinking that the problem is going to solve itself, um, thinking that if I just ignore this, if I don't open the notices from CRA, they'll just go away. So the longer you wait, it's often the fewer options you end up having. And as a trustee, I know I can have a much better uh, job of negotiating with CRA to do a consumer proposal, uh, even for some of these, you know, really difficult business debts. If the person has acted early and they've been good, they've done 
done all their returns up to date. If the person has stopped filing returns for a couple of years, hoping CRA won't catch up with them, it becomes that much more difficult to deal with the debt. So definitely not procrastinating is very important. Another one to really avoid, and this is so difficult, but you have to be careful if you're continuing to inject personal funds into your business. So, you know, a business is often, you know, it's like your baby, it's your child, you want to see it succeed, you just want to give it everything it could possibly need. And sometimes it's during some consultations where we sit down, we look at the numbers and we say, you know, outside of your personal contributions to the business, this hasn't been viable for, for, you know, three or four years. So you really need to have your eyes wide open that all you're doing is transferring your net worth into a business that's just not making you money. So be careful if the only way you're getting things paid is by continually injecting personal funds. Um, you know, the last one here is just if you're continually borrowing more money, so whether it's from you or from a bank, if you're having to inject funds continuously into the business, um, that's usually a big indication that something is not going uh, the way that it should and you, you might be heading to, to a bad outcome. Got it. Now, I know that, that it's, uh, you know, you're from you work at Sands and Associates. You're a key player within the organization. And obviously, uh, if somebody has had any of these situations or in any of these situations, you guys would be the best people to call if, if somebody's tr- going to try to take on dealing with this debt and then dealing with uh, CRA and dealing with these other bodies, because really you're it in terms of uh, the people who are able to do this work uh, mm-hmm. legally and been mandated by the federal government to talk to CRA to assist somebody. So tell us, tell us how you do that and, and what your process is. Mm-hmm. Well, Elaine, you, you said it very well there. If you find yourself in this situation, a lot of times people think it's hopeless, that there's nothing they can do. They think that they know that, hey, no one can ever reduce a government debt for G- GST payroll or whatnot. A trustee can help you with those things. So uh, we do consultations every day with people that are self-employed, you know, basic proprietorships, the partnerships, to even corporations with, you know, numbers of employees. Uh, we'll still meet with the directors and, you know, outline all the options that they have. Uh, people are generally surprised to learn that there are things they can do if they act early if they work with a trustee with CRA, but if you're trying to come at it yourself, CRA might give you six months to pay off whatever the balance is, and then they're going to start collecting very heavily. So make sure you reach out, you get a good consultation with a licensed insolvency trustee and figure out what you can do. And and we know that you're not alone in this. A, a lot mm-hmm. of people are struggling at all different levels, and uh, it's just such a good action to take. Um, I also want to mention, too, though, your website, which is so good, sans-trustee.com. It's filled with good questions and answers for everybody, whether it be personal uh, personal situation or company uh, situations, and you need some more information. But the best thing you, you you can do is give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation set up. Find an office near you. And of course, you're doing everything virtually. So uh, very, very um, uh, open and, and ready to help folks. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So if you were a at all paying attention to any kind of media, including social media today. And and it's the ads that show up regardless of where you are, what you're looking at or listening to or watching. There's always ads for payday loans, cash loans. Different people are going to mm-hmm. solve all of your problems. And that's what this segment is all about. Because all you need is more debt. Right? More that's debt. the solution here. Well, yeah. Except that's not how they suggest it, right? No. It's about here's money. This mm-hmm. is what you need is more money. But of course, how you're looking at it is is really the smartest, best way to look at it because it is. And boy, oh boy, the rules are 
you need to pay attention to those rules because they're very different mm-hmm. than anyone else's rules. So that's what we're talking about in this segment is payday and brokered cash loans and learning what brokered cash loans are as well. Yeah. That's a, That was a new term for me. So let's talk about a payday loan to start it off. Um, who, who are the folks that, and you really are being forced uh, because of circumstances to to use them. Who mm-hmm. who have you found are those people? Yeah, in terms of using payday loans? Yeah, using the payday uh, loans. You know, it, it tends to run the gamut. You know, oftentimes it's folks that are a little bit earlier on in their career, you know, maybe age, you know, 20 to 35 or so. Uh, it starts off with one loan and then there's a second loan required to repay the second one and then a third one and so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about some of the, the you know, statistics later, but I find it to be just a very insipid form of financing. You know, one leads to another and it's all negative just because the cost and the fees are so high. So it's, it's viewed as a very short term, you know, nonchalant, go and get your payday loan on the way to dinner type thing. Uh, For a lot of people, it either accelerates their financial decline or it starts them on a cycle that, you know, maybe they would have avoided otherwise they had not taken that first payday loan. And I think part of the, the, part of the the thing that you need to remember too, is that these are private companies. So these aren't banks, these aren't governments, these aren't Anybody who has some sort of public interest in helping you, they're private companies mm-hmm. wanting to make money. Yeah, and, and their, bus- their business model is they don't care about your credit score. No. So they say, you know, it's inherently more risky that way. Uh, they just care about, you know, do you have a paycheck coming in that they can basically take a piece of? So what a payday loan is, it's a short-term loan. Uh, again, as you mentioned, offered by privately operated companies online or in store. Uh, you can borrow up to $1,500 per loan, and the loan has to be repaid on your next paycheck. Uh, the various provinces and territories have different rules, but in BC, they've set the maximum fee for borrowing. A two-week $100 loan is $15 and a maximum penalty of $20 for a bounced payment. And those charges are in addition to interest rates that you pay. Now, in Canada, there's a criminal code that says that the rate of interest, the maximum rate possible uh, is 60%. But when we do the math and we look at all the cost, fees, and so on and so forth, payday loans are closer to an annual rate of 400%. So I don't know how this can get squared and all the court challenges that have been out there, but it's so far in excess of what the criminal rate of interest is, um, again, to be shocking for a debt professional. Do you want to go into the numbers a little bit of of that uh, 2016 report from Van yeah. City on who's on who's who they found are using them? Yeah, so the, the Van City is the only big bank that we've seen that's done a good job at that surveying, you know, or studying this type of a population. And what they found uh, is in BC, about 5.6 percent of individuals, or almost 200,000 people, when you think about that, that's a lot. Uh, had used payday loans in the past year. This was in 2016. Uh, one in five of the payday loan users were what we'd consider heavy users. They were taking out six to 10 payday loans in a year. So those are the clients that I tend to see. It's very rare I see somebody with just one payday loan. It's more along the lines of the six to 10 that are outstanding. Um, between 2012 and 2014, that population of people that had multiple payday loans, or in this case, more than 15 payday loans outstanding, that went up more than 600%. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. Since I've been a consumer trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, I didn't see any payday loans for probably my first five years of practice. You know, the last eight or nine years, it's just been an accelerating factor where more and more individuals are coming in with payday loans owing. So are we looking at the period 2012 to 2014 as some sort of crunch, money crunch or value crunch that people just 
that's it. I can't do this anymore. I'm not sure if there's something that discreet, Elaine. I think it's just that's when they studied. And if they were to continue studying, they'd probably find that that's okay. continued to increase okay, uh, in fair that enough. way. So okay. there's just been, yeah, it, it's easy financing to access. It's your lender of last resort typically, um, but it's it's often, you know, not a positive financial outcome. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I also, it's I thought this was interesting that British Columbia has the highest rate of working age people living in poverty. And yeah. that would and that would go with that other uh, period of time, right? I mean, folks, you know, things change considerably in BC in terms of the cost of living. Yeah, I don't think it can surprise anybody who's paying attention. That's a very difficult province to, to make ends meet. You know, even with a solid income, with a couple of kids at home, it can be really difficult, you know, to keep your head above water. And in BC, the study found that, you know, most payday loan, payday loan users in BC, uh, they were employed and they had completed a post-secondary education. So we're right. not talking about people that are, you know, functionally or financially illiterate. Oftentimes people know everything that's out there. It's just they really need this money to get them through the next couple of weeks. And because you talk to people every day and and see uh, how many are using payday loans or have used them and gotten into uh, trouble, what um, what do you think in your experience is the, the reason why they go to the payday loan? You know, I think, Elaine, it's just cost of living. So for the most part and most of the time when I speak to somebody, there was nothing specific they can point to that they needed this payday loan for X. It wasn't, you know, to buy this asset for their business. It wasn't, um, you know, to deal with this really unexpected expense for the most part. A lot of the time, it's just I got to the end of the month, I needed to buy groceries. You know, I needed to pay the cable bill. I needed to pay the rent. It's the cost of daily life, which you should be never using credit to pay, but payday loans often fill that gap towards the end of the month. Okay. So that we talked about this in the very beginning and talking about these brokerage agreements, uh, which seemed new to me. And mm-hmm. I guess it's probably, has it been around for a while? I've seen it since about 2016 okay. or so. And my God, the first time I saw one of these agreements, I'm like, how is this possibly legal? Um, you know, you obviously look at the individual, you know, were you aware of what you were signing? And the person's like, yeah, I just thought I needed the money and this is how it kind of worked out for me. So, you know, let, let's talk about how this works. Yeah. So these broker loans that I've seen, to me, it's a way for them to get around and again, that's 60% criminal rate of interest in the criminal code by essentially dividing up the lending decision to a broker that's going to help you get the loan arranged, you're going to pay them a fee, and then the actual loan itself, which is not going to cost you as much as you might think with interest, but when you add the brokerage fee and the interest together, you realize, oh my God, I have way overpaid for any type of financing like this. Okay. And how, uh, you know, how do they appear to us out there in, th- in our world, in our day-to-day world? Well, so sometimes you don't even know that it's happening. It can just be under the same banner that you've seen for, you know, these different payday loans or instant loans. Okay. But when you actually look at the agreement, there are two agreements and one is with a broker and one's with the actual loan loan originator itself. Are they often the same company? Yeah, they can okay. be. Yeah. So, so that's how they get away with that so under 60% yeah. number. Yeah. So if we look at an actual example here, and these were some documents that client brought in to me and said, I can share some of the information here. Um, let's call this person John. So John needed to borrow $700 and he was offered the money that he needed from a company we'll call ABC Loan. So it could okay. be anybody, but ABC Loan. And there was a broker called Borrow Now. So we went into ABC Loan. They said, yeah, we can get you this. And we worked through this broker and he didn't quite understand everything, but he, he thought, okay, yeah, it seems to be two agreements here. So what happened is John got the $700 he needed from ABC loan and the interest rate was 32%. 
And so he agreed to that. He agreed to that. And he thought, oh, well, it's less than 60. It's definitely more than what my credit card would be, but I maxed out on that. So right. I'm going to take this at 32%. So he's going to end up paying, and this is a very short-term loan, he's going to end up paying back $700 in the principal. The interest is going to work out to about $28, given the amount of time he had it outstanding. Um, he had to pay about $2.50 in bank fees to get the withdrawal done. So, so far, nothing too extreme here. But the flat fee for his brokerage borrowing uh, arrangement, $325. So does that mean that hit what he borrowed, the $700, and then $325 on top of that? Exactly. So he's over $1,000 at this point. It cost him $1,055 to borrow $700. Wow. And the interest rate was only $28 of that cost. The rest of it was this brokerage cost. Oh, boy. So how is that not considered part of interest? I don't know. Maybe they got better lawyers than, than I know. But uh, my God, for that individual, they paid through the nose for very short-term financing. So as we wrap up this segment, and we're talking about brokerage uh, loans. How? What do we do? How do we find? How do we see that that's what we're dealing with? Well, you just understand this is absolutely the lender of last resort, and understand you're probably not going to have a positive outcome, and just try to look at alternatives. So if it's to pay rent, can you sit down with your landlord and say, Hey, you know, if I'm going to pay you, I'd have to take out a payday loan. I don't want to do that. Have been late before, can we work something out? It's sitting down with a trustee and saying, okay, I've got all this debt. Can we restructure it? Can we eliminate the interest? Usually the answer is yes. Almost always there's alternatives that can keep you away from payday loans and and brokered loans. Great. We're talking to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. So here's the question, Blair. If you feel like, and we know that there's lots of folks who, who may be feeling this, despite all the payments that you're making, you just can't seem to get ahead of paying off that debt. And there's lots of folks in that situation. The cool thing about this segment is that we're gonna find out, we're gonna talk about the different challenges that may be getting in the way of folks in their goal of clearing the debt. So could we could we start this segment with just talking a little bit about um, what you do and, and how you help folks who fall into that category? Yes, certainly, Elaine. So uh, Sands & Associates, it's a firm of licensed insolvency trustees. And that's a mouthful, but what it essentially means is that we help BC residents address their financial challenges, whatever they might be, and usually it relates to overwhelming debt. Um, And we help people become debt-free. We've been doing it in the province of BC since 1990, so we're well over our 30th anniversary. And what's great about working with a licensed insolvency trustee is we're the only people that are empowered and endorsed by the government to help Canadians restructure their debts. So no matter where you might be financially now, for a lot of people, you know, life can happen. There could be some significant setbacks that can really impact them financially. And a licensed insolvency trustee can be your best ally because we can help you understand your legal rights, your remedies, and connect you to resources to help you become debt-free. And if nothing else, we're just going to help educate you so that you understand everything about your situation and what your options are to help you move forward. So every year we help thousands of individuals in BC get a financial fresh start. So I know that education is probably one of the key pieces that you just mentioned. Definitely, Elaine. So what we find is, you know, knowledge is power. And it's what really inspired me to become a trustee is there, there were all these remedies for debt that I had to learn about the hard way, you know, trying to help friends or family members who got into trouble. Uh, And the more that I discovered, the more I thought, well, you know, the average person doesn't know this stuff. I didn't know it as a business, as someone holding a business degree and working at a large accounting firm. So it really is the case, people that are in the eye of the crisis, they often don't know where to turn. And it just starts with some education. And of course, with some empathy, you know, to meet someone where they're at, understand their challenges, and give them some hope for the future. 
So are there common challenges that, that folks face when they're trying to pay off their debt? My bet is that there, that there is. There's a whole bunch of things that are similar than different. Absolutely, Elaine. So there's some really classic uh, types of patterns that we see. And for someone listening today, you know, you can see if, you, if that rings a bell on a couple of these, you might think, well, hey, maybe having a conversation is a good thing, or at least be armed to know if someone in your life is having these challenges, you know, you can be a resource. Uh, you know, the number one thing that we see that can really get in the way of people paying off debt uh, is the deck is kind of stacked against you if all you're able to do is paying the minimum payment or close to the minimum payment on a credit card, on a line of credit, or, you know, even a payday loan. Uh, if all you're paying is the minimum payments, you're on kind of the never, never plan. You're never going to stop paying and you're probably never going to be out of debt, unfortunately. And the reason for that is because whatever you pay to your minimum payments, you really want to look at the fine print. And for some of the largest banks in Canada, uh, what your minimum payment is cons- comprised of is your interest, your fees, and $10 that goes to reduce your principal. So you're paying $200, for example, $190 of that might just be, you know, gone, it's interest, it's fees, and your balance went down by $10. So that's where we get some of these numbers that, you know, even a $6,000 debt, which, you know, I'm sure some some people could see how that could arise if you had a bit of a tough time, that can be 40 plus years of minimum payment, and you would have paid that off, you know, probably four or five times over by the end of it. So the minimum payment trap is probably the number one thing that gets in the way of people getting out of debt. Now, how big a role do credit cards play with people who realize they have a problem, but paying or putting stuff on their credit card has always been the solution before? So I'm just going to keep doing that now. At least this way, I'll only owe one person or one group one amount of money versus all these other people. Does anybody ever do that? Oh, for sure, Elaine, they do. And then it's also the case some people really get, um, you know, attached to the rewards components of credit cards mm. and say, you know, if I just keep spending, I'm getting air miles or I'm getting, you know, a percentage of my cash back. Um, it's never going to offset the interest that you're paying if you're carrying a balance. So you need to be careful about that of getting kind of sucked in and putting all your your spending on your credit card because it becomes harder and harder to manage your spending because it's not immediately you sit, you see the hit to your bank account. You know, it's probably 21 days or more later where you get that bill. And then you're looking back and think, oh, what, what did I spend there? And what was I thinking? Uh, so what we encourage people to do um, is even for a temporary period of time to really get a handle on spending uh, is just to carry cash. And I know it sounds a little bit strange in you know, this modern world to say roll with cash, um, but it's really it's a different emotion when you're putting down you know, the hard-earned bills in your wallet and feeling your wallet that much lighter um, compared to just tapping um, you know, a card, which suddenly you know, there's a pleasant ding and you know you've added some air miles. But that can be a real barrier for people if they carry on using credit. Um, And it's really tough to even manage to a budget because, again, there's that delay when you see the impact of your spending. So one of the things that does keep people in debt is just that cycle of using a credit for everything. And if you start just rolling with cash, uh, you can sometimes very much uh, get control of your overspending if that is the issue. Now, I just want to throw in here, because we're about halfway through in this segment, that if this already describes a little bit of your situation, um, one of the best things that you can do is give Sands & Associates to call and set up that first appointment and just say, look, this is my situation. What do I do or what do you think would be the best course of action for me? And that number is 1-800-661-3030. What are some of the other scenarios that you see, Blair? Well, another one that we see often is people try to borrow themselves out of a situation. What I mean by that is they'll have some credit, you know, maybe it's on a credit card and they'll get a balance transfer to another credit card. And okay, so maybe they're going from 19% to a 5% promotional rate. Um, But the challenge can be, you know, first off, there can be transaction costs. 
So um, I think I got an offer from the bank the other day and it said, oh, you can transfer um, you know, to a 3% promotional interest rate. But when I looked closer, it said there's also a 1% fee on the entire balance that's transferred. So I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that's one third of the cost of the interest that you're, you're going to charge me over the next number of months. You want that upfront just for doing the transaction. So you want to be careful about that. But it's also the case sometimes people will transfer to a lower interest um, type of debt and then they'll continue to use the original card that's now got a whole lot of space on it. And then suddenly they've got more debt in total because they've transferred the balance over and then they've had to continue to use that credit card. So be very careful if you're just kind of shuffling money around. And what can be a really terrible idea um, is, you know, consolidating your debt might sound great. You know, you go to the bank um, and you get a consolidation loan to put a bunch of credit cards, for example, together at a lower interest rate. But so many people that I speak with, the bank will only approve them for a consolidation loan if they bring on a co-signer. And that's almost always a bad idea because suddenly you've taken all of this debt that was just your issue and now you've made it someone else's issue as well, meaning your co-signer could be held responsible. So be very careful if you're just moving credit to credit. It's usually not going to get you to where you want to be. Now, you've kind of answered um, my next question, which was, you know, do most people try to resolve things on their own? And and you just described Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of situations where they do. So here's an opportunity, Blair, I think, just to talk about um, the best course of action for somebody who's heard their situation uh, explained or talked about in this segment. What's the next best thing for somebody to do? Right, Elaine. And you hit the nail on the head there. In our research, it's 95% of people who know they have a debt problem don't reach out right away for help. They often suffer for up to two years. They, you know, flail about or they just feel bad. Their health suffers, relationships suffer. So if you are listening, you know, don't delay in getting help. And where that starts with is reaching out to Sands and Associates for a free confidential consultation. Uh, We're doing over the phone, limited in person these days, but uh, over the phone and video meetings, you know, oftentimes same day or even same phone call, we can connect you with a very qualified professional. Everybody sleeps better the first night after they finally unloaded a bit of the situation to someone that cares, that can empathize, and that can give them real solutions on how they can move forward to being debt-free. And if you're still unsure and you're not going to take my word for it or Blair's word for it, go to the website as a, as a good start. Take a look at the website, sands-trustee.com. It's filled with really good questions, questions that you probably have and lots of good answers. And then that might be an easy on-ramp for you to then give them a call because you're going to hear that information in more detail and certainly in respect to your own situation. And that number is 1-800-661-3030 and get that first free consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.